0: Welcome to the Georgetown Literary Festival's podcast, Black Milk of Morning, to mark the centenary of the poet Paul Celan, one of the most important German-language poets of the post-World War era and one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. We are honored to have as our guest the distinguished and prolific poet and translator, Pierre Jury, who has been deeply engaged with the work of Paul Celan for close to 50 years. This year is a double remembering of Paul Celan, November 23rd marked the 100th anniversary of Salan's birth, while earlier this year, on April 20th, we commemorated 50 years of Salan's death. I would like to begin our conversation, Pierre, not with Salan's birth, but with his death. What do we know about Salan's death, and what does it tell us about his life?
1: Well, we know that he committed suicide by jumping off a bridge in Paris that is also a poem, the Pont Mirabeau. Um we I think we have a strong sense that the reasons for his suicide are double. There are the psychic scars of the survivor of Khorban O'Shoa, and there is the gull affair. Uh,
0: The goal affair, of course, being the accusations of plagiarism by the wife of Ivan Gol.
1: Right, uh, accusations that they were totally fake, uh, mm-hmm. easily proved, but yes. that tormented him from 1960 onwards. So his whole mm-hmm. last decade, uh, the combination of those around 65 uh, caused nervous breakdowns and some psychiatric um, care he had to. Go into. He was also treated in those years with uh, electroshock, uh, heavy chemical therapy. Uh, Mm -hmm. He had a couple really um, massive breakdowns, one in which he tried to um, kill his wife. and son, but in fact wound up stabbing himself into the lung and his wife got him to a hospital and so on. He was in psychiatric care, but started teaching again. Obviously, it was impossible to go and um, live in the family again, so he took an apartment alone. Giselle needed to um, protect um, Eric, the son, and herself. So he lived alone the last couple of years. And uh, that combination of the, you know, the, the scars of the survivor, uh, a certain a people called it paranoia. I don't think it was paranoia. I think it was, to a great extent, exactly seeing the uh, political in, say, Germany, where he would go to do readings, as what it was. Um, so it, but that combination, you know, was, was lethal for him. And he left a book open on his desk. Um, it's, it was a biography of Hölderlin, and mm-hmm. he left it open and underlined a quote by Clemens Brantano that said, sometimes this genius goes dark and drowns in the bitter well of his heart. I think that's what we can say.
0: That's incredibly haunting. Um, I'd like actually now to return to a beginning, but to the beginning of your own journey with Paul Solan. when and how did you first encounter Salan's poetry and when and why did you begin seriously translating it?
1: I first encountered him in Luxembourg, where I'm from, in my high school around 60 or 61, I can't remember exactly, I was 14, 15. In the German literature class, the German teacher had brought in one of those peripatetic uh, actor travelers who gave a reading of contemporary German poetry for us. And, you know, we were sitting there kind of bored, but at the same time, it was an easy class. And then all of a sudden, this man started to read the Todesfuge, the Death Fugue by Zellan. Mm-hmm and that poem went through me like a knife through butter i have written this a number of times it was the the one epiphany i had and it told me that there was a use of language that was not our daily normal uh, language used when we speak with at home or in the street nor was it what we called between quotation marks literature this was mm-hmm. something else so this was Poetry, but it was a language that uh, opened up something that otherwise had never been even touched in me. And I realized later on that what it was in terms of that poem, it was that the uh, aesthetic beauty of the poem and the content of the poem were at exact opposites, and thus their combination opened up a kind of Abyss, into which I'd fallen.
0: Let's listen to a short excerpt of Paul Celan reading his poem, Todesfuge.
2: Schwarze Milch der Frühe, wir trinken sie abends, wir trinken sie mittags und morgens, wir trinken sie nachts, wir trinken und trinken. Wir schaufeln ein Grab in den Lüften, da liegt man nicht eng. Ein Mann wohnt im Haus, der spielt mit den Schlangen, der schreibt, der schreibt, wenn es dunkelt nach Deutschland. Dein goldenes Haar, Margarete.
1: So, I became interested in poetry. Started as every young person in puberty does, write poems Mm -hmm. to, you know, one's desires of love.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Uh, and I went to Paris to study medicine. Interestingly enough, like Celan had gone to Tours to study medicine. He, after a year, couldn't go back and change to study literature in um, Czernowitz because the war was coming. I dropped out after a year because I decided to be a, become a poet, but do it in English and uh, my fourth language. And so I felt a need to go to America to study American literature, and so on. So I traveled to New York to go to Bard College in fall of 67. With me, I had Vender, the volume of poems that had just been published. Um, and in 68, I started translating that volume as my uh, Bachelor of Arts dissertation, a senior project it was called at Bard College, under the guidance of the poet Robert Kelly. I finished that in 69. And since then, I have more or less continuously, you know, but I stopped for years, uh, continued to translate Ceylon. And I feel it as a kind of obligation because it is Ceylon who showed me what the work, my lifetime's work, was to be, namely poetry. So, as Maurice Blanchot would put it, it's an infinite, I owe him an infinite debt.
0: Yes, indeed. The um, Atemwende that you mentioned was the collection that was published in 1967. And of course, in, in Solan's famous Meridian speech, upon accepting the Georg Büchner Prize in 1960, he had already spoken of poetry as an Atemwende, as a breath turn. Um, what was the nature of this vendor, and how did it mark a radical turn in Solan's own poetics?
1: Well, I think that if you look at the early poetry, and I, I always liked it, but I was never as interested in it than I was in the late poetry from Atatvanda on, because that to me is the great poetry. If you look at the early poetry, including the Todesfuke, you'll see that, uh, Celan's poetry there is relatively traditional, at least in its means. Uh, it is Rilkean. it has a kind of nearly romantic sweep of uh, images, a metaphoricity that is wide ranging. Uh, what Celan realized at one moment was that the Todesfuge was being misused in Germany. That is the poem was being anthologized all over because it was the most famous poem and it was used kind of by the Germans to say, see, we have overcome our past. We can deal mm-hmm. with the sugar." At the same time, all the anthologies that published it talked about the static beauty, but not about the content. The major German critic, uh, Egon Holtusen, wrote a review of it saying, this is absolutely marvelous, the greatest surrealist imagery. It is a fantastic construction that has absolutely no relation to reality.
2: Oh, wow.
1: It, of mm-hmm. course, turned out that Egon, that Holtristen, had been an SS officer in World War Two. So Celan realized that to write after Auschwitz, you could write, but you mm-hmm. had to write in a different mode. And that's when the breath turn happens. The poetry becomes much more, uh, he calls, a gray language. It becomes cleaner, clearer. You cannot go to that euphony uh, that, um, you know, was used to cover uh, kind of r- that, that romantic, nice imagery. One way of seeing that Atombender bender at work in Ceylon is mm-hmm. to take his most famous poem, The Tortoise Fugue, which dates from the late 40s, from 45, in fact, uh, and to compare it to Stretto, which is a rewriting of the material in the Fuga, that is of the Shoah, but he adds, in fact, in Strato he adds uh, Hiroshima, mm, yeah. and you can and you can see by the titles fugue and Strato they are related terms. The Strato is a part of the feud. Uh, the second poem no longer has that gorgeous, aesthetically pleasing. Uh, well-sounding black mill of morning. Da, 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 da. It is language has become very clean, crisp, and clear. It lost a kind of the melos, the melody. It is mm-hmm. a much more. It's a very different music comes to it. Uh, mm-hmm. The the words no longer carry any of that romantic charge. They're very carefully chosen. They, they are very clean, clear, and crisp. So uh, it's an, those two poems tell you exactly what he means by Atemwender.
0: Yes. And Solan's poetry is striking, not only for its powerful imagery and also its unheimlich quality, the, the kind of uncanny quality, but also for Solan's startling re- reconfigurations of the German language itself. How would you describe Celan's struggle with the German language, and what kind of challenges does it pose for you in translating Celan's work?
1: Wow, the, the next two hours. <laughs> 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 uh, um, Celan's relation to his language is summed up easily, if you want. He wrote in German and could only write in German because it was his mother tongue or rather his mother's tongue. He was brought up in a completely multilingual environment. Chernowitz used a kind of Austrian-German kind of inflected. You can still hear it in a Viennese kind of dialectical mode. They also spoke Romanian, of course, because he was Mm -hmm. there. Uh, They also spoke because it was a 60 to 70% Jewish city at that time, Yiddish. And I think Yiddish. his father, in terms of what she was doing, was must have been very much a Yiddish speaker. But the mother mm-hmm. insisted on Hochdeutsch, on High German, mm-hmm. as the great cultural language. It turned out, of course, that High German also was the language of the murderers of the mother. So Ceylon always had to function inside of that absolutely uh, terrifying thing. I have to write in my mother's language, but my mother's language is also the language of those who murdered my mother. He was awesome. conscious of that very early on. There is a beautiful letter that I reprint in MicroLib uh, to uh, the uh, uh, magazine editor uh, called uh, Reich, Reichner, um, in which he explains that he has to write. But that he's worried that when a poem is read in Germany, that in the magazine, that magazine will come into the hands of someone who may have shaken hands with the murderer of his mother, or worse. So that is the the, the struggle of the language, you know. And at the same time, Celan says a poet has to write in the mother tongue, otherwise he lies, which is of course the one. Thing with which I totally disagree with him. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, yes,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that is the, uh, the 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 language struggle mm. for him, and that's why he has to write in German. I mean, he lived in France. If you read his letters to his wife that are in yes. French, he could write French as well as any uh, as Andrej. I sometimes say, you know, mm-hmm. he could have written in any he, he wrote po- poems in Romanian early on. He could have done. Uh, He could have worked in other languages, but obviously, psychically, he couldn't. And it was his job, in a way, to do something with German, to get German back from the Nazis.
0: And in fact, his German um, is very un-German in many ways, so that even to a native um, German reader speaker, there's a lot of difficulty that comes with reading the German of Paul Celan.
1: Exactly, that is something that i tell people when they say, Oh these translations are are, are difficult you know you, you, you and i say well a german an, a German reader mm. will have as much difficulty with it because this is not <laughs> your everyday uh uh German this is Ceylan's reinvented reconfigured German
0: yes. And what about um, translating, then, that Salans German into your fourth language, English? What were <laughs> the challenges of that?
1: <laughs> well, it was to me, um, in a strange way, I began, I knew English when, I, of course, I had started learning it and I took it on. Um. I came to the American poetry because it was the richest and wildest poetry. I was no longer interested in European poetry, with very few exceptions. Ceylon, of course. Uh, But American poetry was the liveliest, the richest, the most open, what was going on. So at the same time as I was learning uh, American, the rhythms of it, the the way it's done when when I was here, I... Was beginning to translate Ceylon, and that taught me a lot about English also, because I had to go from his German, check every word nearly uh, on its roots, on its spaces, on his etymology, the way Ceylon was using it, uh, and then transfer that um, into, into, into English. So it was a marvelous experience over the years uh, working out of his German into. Um, you know, Ceylon called the translator uh, the uh, doing Fergendienst, i.e. ferryman's mm-hmm. labor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned that, I saw that later on, but then I realized, well, that's what, what I did. I took the ferry from Europe here with the book in my knapsack, you know, and sat <laughs> <Yes. laughs> down to, to to translate him and bring him to America. Now, what mm-hmm. is very interesting is that American poetry also taught me about Ceylon, from Attenwender on, if you look at his poems, you see that they're no longer single poems with a title in bold above them, you know, little classic single masterworks in a way. But that the poems are um, nearly phrases in a wider construct so that you have four or five sections per book. And what you have is really a serial poem that you have to Mm -hmm. read. And it's exactly when I was translating Atem Bender and discovering this in 68 that I was reading people like Jack Spicer, who mm. had refigured the notion of the serial poem as the way to go today in a modern, uh, uh, in a contemporary mode. I mean, you can go back to think of Mallarmé and so on, but that Mallarmé, Ceylon connection is, I think, very, very tenuous, and Ceylon was clear about that. The French, of course, love it, but uh, it doesn't (laughs) exist. I think Ceylon is the anti malame but in that sense, he would be much closer to um, structurally and uh, poetically thinking like uh, somebody like Spicer or other um, American poets. That's really
0: fascinating. Um, And Solan's language of poetry is also, he reaches into very vast and at times unexpected branches of human knowledge into the realms of botany and geology, alchemy, Jewish mysticism, medicine. Um, Why was that important for Solan?
1: Well, I think to begin with, it was uh, a way of cleaning the language. That is, he uh, obviously needed to denazify German. And the way you can do that is one to know exactly where all your words come from, what vocabularies they belong to, and then use those vocabularies that were ideologically free of um, assimilation into uh, you know Nazi thought. He also was somebody who from very early on was totally was interested in the natural sciences. He took Classes in botany when he was um, at school. So he knew flowers. And here, is, if you want, is an example of that how uh, the old flowery metaphor, where in the classical romantic poem, flower is kind of a central image. For Ceylon, he couldn't use that word anymore because in that way mm-hmm. it had been misused too often. So he would go very specific and speak of Arnica or Eyebright, you know. Yes, those who for true, example uh, are A healing plant, you know that poem, yes, right? Yes. So it was a way of getting out of a uh, sloppy uh lyricism. It mm-hmm. was, you know, a very clear help. And the structure of the poems becomes more crystalline in a way later on. And so in a strange or not so strange manner, geology and um, the structures of glaciers, of stones, of, uh, and so on interested him. And not only does he use the vocabulary, but the poems become allied structures, structures allied to such geological features. And that to me has always been extremely fascinating and mm-hmm. I think could be very useful to poets to young poets to uh, today uh, when mm-hmm. you think of an echo of poetics mm-hmm. We have to think of an uh, you know a poetry involved with ecology turning again towards not a romantic nature you know yes um, i I can go on um in that and show what she does, mm. uh, you know, I speak of fearful polysemy at some yes. point. I think you mm-hmm. want to ask me about that.
0: Yes, uh, I'd like you to elaborate on, um, no. on this idea of fearful polysemy. What, well, could you give us some examples of this polysemic nature of Salon's yes. poetry?
1: Yes, in the poem I already mentioned, where you have Annika and Ibrow, there is a word, Waldwazen. Mm-hmm. And traditionally gets translated as the forest meadows, you know, the kind of the glen on which the Romantic uh, lemmies, uh jump around and the poet lies with, you know, a piece of grass in his mouth and romanticizes how beautiful it is. Uh, then you justify that by saying, well, Vazen should be really Wiesn, which would be wall, uh, forest meadows. Yeah. But the two A's reflect the two A's of the two bright plants in the first line and, and so on and so on. In fact, if you go and check vasen, vazen is not Wiesn. The difference is an A and an IE. But in meaning, a vase is grass, but it is the grass with the roots underneath it. That is, mm-hmm. you're immediately in a very much, a very Ceylon landscape. The roots underneath it go deeper even. It becomes torf. That is, it becomes peat. And then you have peat bog somehow come in. Also, mm-hmm. the word is used in a German construct that says Wazenmeister, the master of the Vasen of the torf. That was also... The shindahannas, that is, the man in the village who killed sick animals and went to bury them. So they are buried in the vasem. Then if you go to the actual root, etymologically, of the word vasen, you don't get to meadow. You get to a French word, fessou, because it was used for the landscape in which people gathered uh, wood, in, in the forest that they put together in bundles and took home, a faisceau. Faisceau, of course, in French, comes from the Latin fascis, which gets mm-hmm. us to the, fa- the the image of the fascist bundle with the axe protruding. protruding. So oh you can see where that change mm-hmm. from an i.e., vizen, the nice meadow, to vazen leads mm-hmm. us Mm -hmm. That is the depth at which Ceylon operates. That's why there are fewer words in the later poems, because each word has a a weight and a vertical drag that one needs to check out.
0: Yes, and of course translating Ceylon's work involves such close reading. Um, And you've been translating and closely reading Ceylon for almost 50 years. And this deep engagement with Salan's work, how has it shaped your own work as a poet?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, it taught me a lot. It taught me the need for precision.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, It taught me that one has to look at every word one uses. Mm. Uh, I have on my desk here. Uh, the Poconi Indo-Europaisches Etymologisches Wörterbuch mm-hmm. uh, which is an absolute help for uh, this. Now, interestingly enough I needed that for Celan but the two only poets I knew who had a copy of it and who taught me about it was Robert Kelly for one and Jeremy Prynne in Cambridge mm-hmm. um, I, my wife was able to get me a copy uh, eventually when it was reprinted so That kind of attention to language is something I learned from him. It comes into my own poetry. Of course, I am worried or was worried early on about the possibility for imitation. So I very consciously wrote some kind of bad poems that were my imitations of Ceylon to Mm -hmm. get through that. And then I wrote in the mid-70s a book I called the Book of Luap Nalek. Luap Nalek is Paul Ceylon written backwards, mm. in which I very consciously address this figure I created a Ruap Nalek of an Invert Celan, and kind of write my way through his language and through my relation to him. And I think after that, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I, I didn't have... A problem with the fact that yes i have translated him for took me 52 years to mm. finish translating all of his literary oeuvre but he became more of the kind of companion you know mm-hmm. um i mean in the mid late in the late 70s i was teaching in algeria at the university of constantine and i would go down to the weirdly named Hotel Transatlantique in El uh, Oued, an oasis in the Sahara, and I was sitting <laughs> in the Hotel Transatlantique, and I'd bring out the Atombender Bender translation, but also look at the next volume and and, and translate him. So here I'm sitting in the middle of the Sahara, translating those late Ceylon things. Oh, but,
0: incredible you know,
1: image, <laughs> strange and off, you know. Um, um, but that also kind of it allowed me to look at things in uh, different ways than I probably would have been able to look at them if I had not been with Ceylon, you
0: know. Yes. Yes, and you've just recently completed two new translations of Ceylon. One is Microliths of Posthumous Prose and also Memory Rose into Threshold Speech. Could you please um, tell us more about these two new translations?
1: Yes, uh, Memory Rose into Threshold Speech are, of course, the first four volumes. Um, the title sounds odd, but as you know, I did a title for Breath Turn. Um, into Time's Into, dead. into time stead combining, you know, the, the, the five words from the volumes from the title. Mm-hmm. That was easy because that late poetry is well known that Ceylan combines words continuously. Which, by mm-hmm. the way, is very interesting. Because mm-hmm. When you read him, sometimes such a word strikes you as totally odd. And you say, he must have invented it. And you check it mm-hmm. out. And you see, oh, no, that's actually a word that is in German. And then other words sounds, uh, well, I know that word. That must be a German word. And you check and say, no. That was a Celan construction. It's an invention. it so yeah. keeps you off balance, so I kept that in the titles. But for this one, memory rose into threshold speech. The early titles are actually uh, uh, different ones. They they are pre-Atomwende, pre the new. Mm-hmm. So you have a different kind of uh, collection now. So that volume gathers the first four volumes of uh, film, and I want. The, I was not necessarily going to do these books. But mm-hmm. John Scalassi at FSG, after he published Turn* into Timestead, kind of asked me, uh, do you want to do that? And I let myself be convinced.
0: Oh, I'm glad he did. <laughs> I'm glad you were
1: convinced. <laughs> I had to put <laughs> two books of mine aside to which I'm going to get <laughs> at the end of November when all of this is done. Uh, mm-hmm. And Microlith is uh, the the other book. I, I, I really love that book dearly because it is the uh, beautifully edited by Barbara Wiedemann and Bertrand Mm -hmm. Badiou's posthumous collection of all the prose bits that Ceylon wrote in notebooks or typed, whatever. Uh, And we have so little prose of Ceylon's. You know, we have those two essays and uh, the little prose conversations in the mountains. But uh, uh, this book gives us really gorgeous access to Celan's thinking. Um, It was supposed to be published a couple of years ago, but that publisher didn't make it. So then uh, my uh, New York publisher, Contramundum Press, uh, decided uh, to do it, and I think did a beautiful job in terms of uh, uh, putting it together and, and publishing it. So I think they are really interesting companion volumes, because I would say at this point, Somebody to come to Celan, read Celan, it is very important to uh, also read Microlith because Celan speaks in it about how he writes poetry, why he writes poetry. Also, his only statement Mm -hmm. on the Gaul affair is a long letter to Alfred Anders, the German writer and publisher, that he finally did not send. But The letter is there, we have it, and I translated it, and it is uh, uh, the final piece inside of uh, microlis. So I think it's a very useful volume to read with the two uh, big ones, uh, the the two volumes of poems. And I'm done, 52 years. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: an incredible journey for you. I would, um, I would like to invite you to read some of your translations. If you could share with our listeners some of your translations of Salan's poetry and also um, from the microliths.
1: Thank you. Yes, let me begin with a couple of the short pieces from microlet because they talk, uh, those that talk about what a poem is. To tell, one hundred sixty-two point four. It belongs to the poem's essence. That it will release the author, the confident, from its confidence. If it were different, no poet would write more than one poem. 162.5. The conjunction of the words in the poem. Not only a conjunction, also a confrontation. Also, towards each other and then away from each other. Encounter, descent, and leaf-taking all in one, Uh, 163.6, begin. Among the basic characteristics of poetry, I believe, is that it knows itself to be exposed to misunderstanding. A note to that says, because of this, it knows itself to be on the way to those who are still willing to let themselves be made thoughtful. And it goes on. The poem takes even its author completely into its understanding only for the duration of its coming into being, and then releases him too. 163.7. The poets, despite inspiration, not a tribe of Illuminati. Each word, even the seemingly slightest, searches for new connections, once into language. And finally, one sixty three eight, the poets last wardens of solitude. And then I'll read a few poems, um, one from the first volume um, that is gathered in uh, Memory Rose, and that is the Poppy and Memory, Memory and Poppy. The poem Corona,
0: Let's first listen to a recording of Paul Salan reading his poem Corona in German.
2: Corona Aus der Hand frisst der Herbst mir sein Blatt. Wir sind Freunde. Wir schälen die Zeit aus den Nüssen und leeren sie gehen. Die Zeit kehrt zurück in die Schale. Im Spiegel ist Sonntag. Im Traum Wird geschlafen, der Mund redet wahr. Mein Aug steigt hinab zum Geschlecht der Geliebten, wir sehen uns an, wir sagen uns Dunkles. Wir lieben einander, wie Mond und Gedächtnis. Wir schlafen wie Wein in den Muscheln, wie das Meer im Blutstrahl des Mondes. Wir stehen umschlungen im Fenster. Sie sehen uns zu von der Straße. Es ist Zeit, dass man weiß. Es ist Zeit, dass der Stein sich zum Blühen bequemt, dass der Unrast ein Herz schlägt. Es ist Zeit, dass es Zeit wird.
1: Es ist Zeit. Autumn eats its leaf out of my hand. We are friends. We shell time from the nuts and teach it to walk. Time returns to the shell. In the mirror is Sunday. In the dream, we sleep. The mouth speaks true. My eye goes down to the lover's sex. We gaze at each other. We speak of dark things. We love each other like poppy and memory. We sleep like wine in the seashells, like the sea in the moon's blood beam. We stand and embrace at the window. They watch us from the street. It is time for this to be known. It is time that the stone took the trouble to bloom, that unrest's heart started to beat. It's time for it to be time. It is time. And then from uh, Speech Grill, there is the poem Tenebré.
0: And we'll first listen to Salan reading in German.
2: Tenebré Nah sind wir, Herr, nahe und greifbar. Gegriffen schon, Herr, ineinander verkrallt, als wir der Leib eines jeden von uns, dein Leib, Herr. Bete, Herr, bete zu uns, wir sind nah. Windschief gingen wir hin, gingen wir hin, uns zu Bücken nach Mulde und Mar. Zur Tränke gingen wir, Herr. Es war Blut, Es war, was du vergossen, Herr. Es glänzt. Es warf uns dein Bild in die Augen, Herr. Augen und Mund stehen so offen und leer, Herr. Wir haben getrunken, Herr. Das Blut Und das Bild, das im Blut war, Herr. Bete, Herr, wir sind nah.
1: We are near, Lord, near and graspable. Grasped already, Lord, clawed into each other, as if each of our bodies was your body, Lord. Pray, Lord, pray to us, we are near. Wind bent, we went there, we went there to bend down over crater and mar. To the trough we went, Lord. It was blood, it was what you spilled, Lord. It shone. It cast your image into our eyes, Lord. Eyes and mouth gape so open and empty lord we have drunk lord the blood and the image that was in the blood lord pray lord we are near
0: it's incredibly evocative pierre those um two two of my favorite poems <laughs> actually, <laughs> corona and tenebra thank you so much incredibly evocative um, thank you so much, Pierre, um, for your presence here with us today at the Georgetown Literary Festival's podcast. Um, in memory and to mark the centenary of Paul Celan, I hope very much that one day we will be able to welcome you to Malaysia in person um, to join us at the Georgetown Literary Festival.
1: Thank you very much, Pauline. It was wonderful to be invited and to speak of Ceylon over there. And Malaysia is one of the places I've never been to. I would love to come.
0: Yes, wonderful. We shall have you here one day.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you very much, Pierre.